Welcome to the Life After Sugar podcast. The podcast that's not just about sugar, but about your relationship with it and also with food and especially with yourself. So if you want to discover your life after sugar and hear inspiring stories from all kinds of people who also cut out sugar in their way, at their pace, for their own reasons, this is the podcast for you. Because you know, when you take away the sugar, you can finally discover the real sweetness in your life. I'm your host, Netta Gorman, and this week I'm talking to Jan Steele, a.k.a. La Goose, because she's based in the beautiful Cévennes Mountains near Montpellier in France. She's actually a nutritional therapy consultant, a cooking instructor, and an allergen-friendly vacation host because she herself has celiac disease. And actually, what we talk about is how her intolerance to gluten has helped her to learn to harness the power of real food in order to feel better. And now she has a wonderful gluten-free bed and breakfast in the south of France. We'll get to our chat in just a minute. And this week's episode is brought to you by the After Sugar Club, which is where you'll get the step-by-step guidance you need from me to help you let go of sugar and the emotional hold it has on you so that you can get to a place of freedom where you don't even need, want or miss it anymore. So that you can break free from sugar for good and make your intermittent fasting lifestyle easy and natural. That's AfterSugarClub.com and click on the green button, join the club. And if you're an intermittent faster, then I have five tips for you to help you get rid of cravings that may be getting in the way of you living your easy and natural intermittent fasting lifestyle. Go to AfterSugarClub.com and download my five tips there. And if this is your first time here, welcome! Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so that it appears magically in your podcast player every Sunday. And if you've listened to several episodes before and you haven't yet left a review, could I ask you to scroll down please and rate the podcast and leave a lovely review to tell me how this podcast is helping you in your life after sugar. Has it inspired you to reduce sugar? Has it made you think about sugar a little bit differently? Let me know. I love reading your reviews. Thank you. All right, so here's my chat with Jan. So I'm talking today with Jan Steele, also known as La Goose, because you live in the south of France now, right? I do, yes, but I'm Canadian. But you're Canadian as well, fellow Canadian on the other side of Canada from me. (laughs) That's right. You're from Vancouver? Yes, I am. I grew up in Vancouver, yeah. Okay, so tell me a little bit about what your life was like when you were still eating sugar and all the things, and then what happened to sort of change all that? Mm-hmm. Well, honestly, so my story is somewhat unique in that there was, well, a couple of things. So I'm life, I'm a celiac, so I have celiac disease, but I was diagnosed when I was a very small child. So in fact, the transition to a gluten-free diet was not um, done by me. It was done by my mother, my parents. 
um, and largely my mother. Um, and so I grew up not having ever understood why people struggle with these things because it was just my norm and it was my way of living. And um, I honestly didn't know what the, all the fuss was about. Um, and so I think that speaks to the power of um, habit and culture. And if, and you know, if it's something that you take for granted, you just you just don't question it. And it's only when there is a choice that all of a sudden you have to start thinking and <laughs> thinking too hard probably. And then wondering whether this is this or that is good for you or not. And the great um, aspect or, or the very immediate illness that follows ingesting gluten for a celiac is very, very persuasive. So it's a great deterrent. Um, to help us comply, I think. And so there was just no motivation to cheat on the gluten-free diet because you felt awful right pretty immediately. Yes, yeah, that is a great motivation because I've had some people tell me, look, if sugar or in your case, gluten, you, but if, for them, if sugar made me feel so awful, I would stop it straight away. But for a lot of people, it's for sugar at least, it's not as immediate as for gluten for you. It's right. It takes years and years, which is why most of us sort of wake up in our 40s and 50s about sugar. Yeah, and sugar, I think, is really quite nefarious and sort of insidious because it is everywhere now. Um, and and like you said, industry has done such a good job of making it ubiquitous that we don't even question it anymore. Um, and it's in things that it has no business being in. It's sometimes in there as a, a preservative, even not even so much as a, you know, flavor component. Um, so anyway, so I grew up gluten free, and then it was only much later when I had my children that pregnancy then re kind of activated my autoimmune issues, and so that's when I, and then you know previous several years of small children who don't sleep and who require an incredible amount of energy and yep. um, my husband worked really long hours so I was essentially single momming it and just all of that the stress of all of that plus multiple international moves and all the rest of it um, made it for made for a really quite of a quite a difficult period of time for me there and that's when I started really questioning what was going on um, feeling like I was going to not survive for much longer um, and feeling like that was not possible because my children were far too young to be living without a mother, yeah. um, you know, that they, I, I was just sort of what, what finally motivated me to act on these horrible feelings was that I was looking at my small children and thinking they need me, they're going to need me. They in fact already need me more than I can show up for them. Um, and so something has to change, something has to give. And so I really started digging into the nutritional therapy concept, which was not a foreign concept for me because I already understood. I mean, having lived gluten-free, it was very obvious to me that there would be certain people for whom eating this or that would be more beneficial. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I went to first the GAPS diet, which I felt was um, really interesting and that so it, it deals with sugar, but it's not only that. It's it's all of these sort of approaches are mostly aiming for similar goals in aiming for restoring the intestinal tract, restoring 
um, the, you know, the microbiome. Um, yes, eliminating sugar so that we're, if we have issues with candida, we can deal with those. I mean, there's so many different aspects to health. Um, but when you finally sort of engage with something and then the fog starts lifting, it's just such a, a revelation, I think, when you, you know, like I was to the point where I'd read enough about it that I thought, oh, I'm so excited. I'm getting a migraine. It must be working. You know, <laughs> like I was just really excited. Yeah. And it was just even more motivating that it was, you know, because some of the bacteria are going to emit toxins as they die off. And so you feel first worse before you feel better. And for me, that was proof that it was working. You know, it wasn't a deterrent to continuing. It was like, oh, I'm finally getting somewhere with this. Yes. And, it, and I guess it was your the fact that you educated yourself on these things that made you say, oh, this is a good thing, like the die off, which I also had when I started looking after my gut health, but with different symptoms. I mean, you have to know what it is. Otherwise, it's pretty freaky and scary. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, we're also, you know, kind of fickle beings. And, you know, when we want to adopt change I think in the back of our head we're also a little bit reluctant to do it no matter what the change is and so there's something in our subconscious that's constantly looking for an out um I don't know in my instance I was really really determined and I felt so bad um that I just felt like I, I just felt like it couldn't get any worse so I might as well engage with this and we were talking about a period of two weeks where I was going to just go on nothing but but bouillon for two weeks and I thought I'm going to do at least that and there's I you know I'm convinced enough that that's not dangerous that I'm going to do that and so de facto I eliminated sugar cold turkey because there is no sugar in bouillon homemade broth homemade chicken broth and it did, it just within 11 days, I could just feel everything subside, all the inflammation and all the swollenness and all of the discomfort and all of the brain fog and just everything. And yes, at the, in the, at, in the, for the first couple of days, it was tricky because of course you're, everything is saying to you, go and have something else to eat, go. And you just can't get your head off of it. Right. You know? It's, it's we're, we're such slaves to our intestinal tract. And whatever's living in there yeah absolutely and it's like the the body doesn't recognize when we've been eating a certain way for years and years the body doesn't recognize what real food is or what feeling good is well and i think we all get to the point where we're not eating because we're hungry especially in the west we eat because it's noon and you're supposed to eat at noon you know but I think we should begin to question that as well. I think we should try to re-engage with our bodies. I mean, it, too frequently we are taught to ignore what's going on inside our bodies because you know we're, we're following a school schedule or we're following a work schedule or we're following a daytime schedule and there's certain things that happen at certain times. And while I understand the efficiency model, I'm not sure that it's perhaps, you know, the one most based in health. Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree with you from personal experience. And plus, I feel um, but you've got, you know, training as a nutritional therapy. And I had consulted a nutritional therapist who, whose advice changed my life for the better. So, you know, I really respect what that approach is, which happens to be pretty much the opposite of any approach to do with nutritional health that I'd ever come across. 
Yeah. Well, and it's really frustrating because those of us who have studied with the Nutritional Therapy Association and particularly in the States, um, you're right. The, the concepts that we discuss are very little discussed in, in the realm of nutrition education. So then we're stuck, like even now, my daughter's now in grade four, so she's learning about nutrition. And so she comes home with these worksheets that just have no bearing in reality as far as I'm concerned. And I'm left to think, okay, what's the approach here? You know, do we just do the worksheet and send it in? Or should we be pushing back on this and questioning with the teacher? But the teacher didn't study nutrition. The teacher's just taking it out of the science textbook, you know. But that's where we're at. And then so that anyone who did a degree, who did four years worth of nutrition studies and became a dietitian or became a nutritionist has a very different take on it. And it's a much more conventional um, medical model. It's still got a lot to do with counting of calories, um, with weight loss, with um, whereas my training was, who cares about calories? Calories don't measure anything because, and the problem with counting calories is that it pre-assumes that they're all equal. Right. Obviously the calories that are provided by a chocolate bar could not be deemed to be equivalent to the calories, even if it's the same hundred that the calories that are provided by a carrot. So Maybe they both have 100 calories, but there's no doubt in my mind that the carrot's going to be more valuable than the chocolate bar. And if you're only measuring calories, how would you ever determine that? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And um, I had Michelle Hearn who quit being a dietitian uh, because she was saying, well, you know, I, I was giving advice that was actually harming people and kind of being obliged to give it. Uh, although I've seen nutritionists and, and dietitians will make that distinction between, let's say, the 100 calories in chocolate and 100 calories in, I think they usually say broccoli, but carrots are good enough. <laughs> um, but they don't actually, I never found that they, dis, that they explained why, what is it about, you know, I mean, they go on about empty calories, but someone like me with no background in the sciences and stuff, we I didn't understand what empty calories meant. I didn't know what effect it had on insulin. I didn't know. I thought insulin was only for diabetics and nobody else had to think about it. And I didn't even know what it was. I thought it, I didn't even know it was made by the pancreas, you know. I knew nothing about how insulin can lead to weight gain. It was all about calories, yeah. as you no, say. And I mean, there's a fascinating debate that exists within the realm of diabetes. Um, because there's a huge debate around diabetes treatment and whether or not we should be promoting the treatment of diabetes via insulin shots. Because in fact, what, what is inflammatory is insulin. And so yes, we can now lower the blood sugar by applying an injection of insulin, but insulin is what is inflammatory in the bodily process. So with no discussion of diet, a, the, di the, the, the disease, the diabetes is as an autoimmune disease in the case of type two diabetes, which is becoming more and more prevalent, the, the autoimmune process and the diabetes itself, it's, it's gonna continue to progress within the bodily systems if we're doing nothing more than managing the blood sugar levels. But we're still, in fact, eating too much sugar, but then managing it with insulin. Makes so no is, sense. So is that the way that we should be treating diabetes or should we be addressing it largely 
via dietary change first, and then as an emergency measure, bringing in far smaller doses of insulin in the form of injection. Yeah. But without that dietary component, which is, I think, the large majority of how diabetes is treated these days. Um, yeah, I mean, it would be tantamount to, and there are and there are people and there are trials in pro, in 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 progress right now for in terms of the gluten free issue. There are many companies that are trying to develop a sort of a lactate for gluten, where you could be celiac and just eat this pill before you have your gluten containing meal, and now you'll be fine. And I'm saying, except that, no, I won't, because it's going to still trigger the inflammatory process and re-trigger the autoimmune process. And unless that's under control, I'm going to develop a second and then a third and then a fourth autoimmune disease, because we know that that's how that happens. And so I have celiac disease and then you get Hashimoto's and then, you know, so, you know, I think we do need to look farther than just the immediate, okay, what's the immediate impact of having this piece of candy or having this milkshake or having this extra slice of whatever yeah we're having these you know carrots or having this cup of juice with my breakfast instead of an actual orange you know yeah absolutely and also to sort of reevaluate what normal diet is what normal is you know because of this such a strong message of everything in moderation don't cut anything out that's disordered eating and i'm thinking all that processed stuff, I can't even call it food, that I used to be eating in the way that I was eating it, which is really craving it, that's disordered. Hmm. Well, and I certainly think in the modern era, so I went to cooking school after all of, uh, so my focus was always to be the person that could help someone learn to cook differently. Um, because they, you know, I don't want to convince someone that they wanted that they need to eat gluten free. But if somebody wants, you know, is convinced that that's what they want or need to do, I'm happy to now show them how to do it. Because I think in the kitchen, that's there is a lot of sort of technical skills that can be useful, and it's a bit of a learning curve. And once you've got these little skills under your belt, then I think you're good, and you, you know, you can live quite quite easily. Um, but so in cooking school, I found it to be really strange also that there was never any discussion of nutrition when in fact we're cooking with food yeah. we're talking about food you know like so so the whole food culture whether it be in terms of like choosing your diet or also um the whole aesthetic and you know taste and texture and all of that we talked about the whole aesthetic realm of cooking the, the gastronomic type um discussion but I think it has sort of fallen by the wayside that we in fact eat to feed our bodies and not just our tongue. Um, and I think that in the rush of modern life also, we forget that. We too often are just go, 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 go. And lunch is like a 20 minute period in between classes or in between, I don't know, extracurricular activities at school, or I have to run and then I'm going to throw it, you know, and then I'm going to scarf down a scan sandwich in front of my computer. I think again, we're underestimating the, the, the value that food or the role that food is supposed to play in our lives. 
um, and we're not giving it the, the time and consideration that it really does deserve yeah. so that we can be healthy. So yeah. I think there's a number of problems I could think. And I think the industrial model, but that just feeds into that because convenience food, we grab it because we're in a rush, you know, but maybe even if you're eating an immaculate diet, if you're working 80 hours a week, maybe the immaculate diet is probably not going to save you anyway. And you're probably going to be more stressed than you needed to be anyway. And you may be having some hypertension issues any, you know, yep. it's like, you can't, you can't sort of dig your way out of a really bad lifestyle and you can't eat your way out of a lack of sleep and you can, you know, like everything has to kind of be in, in, in balance. Um, and food is just one aspect of that. But I think if we do take the time to slow down, if we do take the time and energy to go back to thinking about, you know, is it a horrible thing to spend an afternoon making a cake and then enjoying it with your family on a special occasion? I, I honestly, I don't think so. But I think the danger, but I think that the value in terms of that cake goes way beyond the cake itself. I think the value is in spending the time with your daughter or your son or your husband or whomever to make the cake. First we go and we get the ingredients and then we take the time and we make it and then we ice it and it's all of that. And then yes, we're going to ingest it, but but the the give and take of having spent and invested in that and the, the cultural value and the is so much more than just going to a bakery, getting a beautiful cake, showing up at a place, you know, scarfing down two or three pieces and then walking away. It's just a different engagement, I think. Yeah, it's the engagement and that quality time together that's what counts. And yes, for me, it's like I've, because I felt so much better without the cake, without the sugar and, and everything else, it just forced me to find, to keep that aspect of it, the time together and that slowing down and just translate it into another type of activity or well, another absolutely. type of food. Absolutely. And that you're right. I mean, there are too many instances where activities revolve around food when they have no business really doing that. And we've turned every single activity, it seems good or bad, positive or grief or anything, we've turned it all into a little bit of a, an orgy of, of sugar. And, you know, you go to the movie and you're supposed to have this bucket full of pop or I don't know what, you know, like I just can't. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. You can't sort of do anything without eating and there's, there's snacking at night when you're watching a movie and all that stuff, you know, even at home. Coffee, coffee's just gone so far beyond what coffee, you know, yeah. I remember dealing with a woman in Lebanon who was really having a, a hard time adopting a, a specific protocol. And one of the things was that she was wanting, needing to, or questioning whether she should have coffee. And I said, well, you know, at the end of the day, maybe a coffee is not going to be all that horrible for your body. But, but let's first agree on what are we talking about when we say what is coffee? because she was taking those little packages, the little three-in-one packages and ripping it open and dipping it into hot water. And I don't know what kind of chemicals are in that, but if you look at the ingredients, I don't even think there's any coffee in that. You know, like I was just like, can we at least agree that this is not coffee, <laughs> right? Like, right. so at right. the end of the day, if, if your only improvement is that you've gotten away from that and gotten rid of anything that comes in a package, 
and gone back to actual recognizable food that came out of the earth somehow somewhere you know like e482 is not growing in my garden so we have to not be eating that you know <laughs> yeah totally yes and it doesn't have to be all or nothing which right. is so intimidating and and a great way to sabotage oneself by saying oh well if i can't eat 100 so-called clean which i just call food um then it's not worth doing it blah blah you know we do and we do tend to sort of make excuses of about- course I just want to take a quick break to introduce you to my partner for this podcast, Medicine with Heart, which is an international functional medicine clinic specializing in difficult chronic cases of hormone imbalance, Lyme disease, mold illness, and digestive dysfunction. You can sign up for a consultation with their team to see if they can help reverse your disease. Find out more about them at medicinewithheart.com. But so I would encourage everyone to try to become, you know, a bit of a food snob. And so go, but, but define food properly, you know, like food is not because I had lots of, you know, fellow chefs for whom it was gorgeous what they were making, you know, like they were messing with the chocolate and the pastries and whatever. And I'm like, it's gorgeous what you've done, but please don't put that in your mouth because we, we need to recognize that that's no longer food, you know, like molecular gastronomy is sculpture and it's beautiful but it's not food anymore can we please you know yes yes we do need a definite a proper or a new definition of what food is which is really and, and the one that in, you know the one that informs me mostly is to go back to the ancestral model to to sort of go back to thinking about how early man survived on the planet for centuries um and well, because when we look at the condition of their bodies now, when, you know, granted you had to survive through childhood, so early childhood, fine, but, you know, they lived to have quality of life for, in often cases, in many cases, far longer than we are now today. And, and with all of our luxuries of the modern world, um, we've got some really, really, really bad civilization diseases that are, that are in, in that we're coping with and that we're in fact choosing to cope with yes yes that we're sort of creating and then having to cope with <laughs> but I mean I don't think we even have to go back that far in history I just think of my grandparents that lived during the second world war in London you know and they yet what is I call real food yeah, no, I mean, it's, there are some fascinating books out there that talk about the advent of sugar and, and the, the arrival on the scene of sugar. Um, and even when you go back even further than, like you said, your grandparents, if you go back further into the, like the, the Renaissance and the kings and the queens, and there were times where um, similar to, you know, how like um, the paleness of your skin was, was meant to be like determinant of your class within society well your accent the the quality of your teeth was meant to do that because if you had access to sugar it meant that necessarily you were wealthy and so if you had really crappy teeth (laughs) it was like a sign of noblesse you know that you have these rotting teeth as a child and isn't that wonderful how and I'm like yeah okay so maybe 
<laughs> crazy, isn't it? Yes, yes, crazy. And and so and that much more crazy that you know you you were like forced to be more aware of the quality of what you eat because it you know because early on in your life gluten made you feel so awful and when you cut out gluten I would imagine you also cut out a whole load of other processed foods because that's mainly where gluten is found right well and so I had the benefit of being diagnosed in the 70s you know like I'm old so um, I was being diagnosed at a time when it wasn't happening all that frequently, certainly not for children. So I was very fortunate. The other people that I met who were celiac of my age were more, um, more regularly had lived ill for upwards of 10 years, had been misdiagnosed time and again, and then were finally diagnosed with one and often two um, autoimmune diseases when they finally did put their finger on it. And it was a time when processed foods were just starting to come into their own. So we had the breakfast cereals and those kinds of things, but we didn't have, certainly we didn't really have the whole plethora of gluten-free industrial foods that are available today. I think that's a real pitfall that newly diagnosed people today fall into because you can have a really just, you know, Again, like if you're not going back to truly define what, what are the foods that you're going to eat, I think no matter what the guidelines that you set out for yourself are, you can still be eating really badly. So you can still eat a really horribly poor gluten-free diet. Yeah. If you, if you do nothing but replace your gluten-containing foods with now industrial gluten-free foods, you will have changed nothing. And I harbor to I dare to guess that probably you will not feel all that much better yes they've done a great job marketing that gluten-free label on you know and, you know again it's the convenience and there are times don't get me wrong there are times where it's valuable because you need to just sort of grab something and go and so it's wonderful I mean it's a little bit wonderful if you do it wisely but if you rely on those products too much um, and I think most people do because they can, <clears throat> you know, when I grew up, we couldn't, there wasn't any, there was rice cakes and they were awful. Yeah. When I was, you know, 14 years old, I absolutely didn't want to eat a rice cake. You know, it's like puffed cardboard. So, so necessarily breakfast for me was, you know, vegetables or an omelet or, but, but so I didn't ever come to ha have as my comfort foods these products that are highly industrial that can sit on a shelf for six months at a time if more if not more and never move I mean again that's my definition of it's not food then if it yes comes in the package and has a date on it that's further than you know <laughs> next, next week. season <laughs> it's questionably you know you need to question is this food so my comfort food you know and don't get me wrong I mean I eat gummy bears like the next person when I was a child but I, you know, the dessert tray would go by and I just didn't even question whether I could even bother looking because I just figured it was all contaminated anyways and I didn't want to get sick. And so there was that as the benefit. Um, today, I run a gluten-free bed and breakfast in the south of France here. And what I really love is seeing people come and seeing them happily surprised at the food that we're able to provide them 
that they felt like they had, because we're in France too, where bread is, you know, it's a religion here. So, you know, the baguette. Oh, the baguette. Yes, love that so, stuff. So there's something to that as well. And I think that, you know, on the one hand, you do want to be able to make peace with your diagnosis and not feel like you can't ever eat the, the foods that you loved and that you've created these relationships with as your comfort foods. But I also, you know, want people to, if you're going to eat gluten-free out of necessity, out of, you know, a health, a health prerogative, then be smart about it. You know, don't just replace whatever was gluten containing, you know, like when I see on Facebook, these debates as to whether or not we should like, you know, start a petition. So the McDonald's offers gluten-free fries. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> what a waste of time. You know, like I can't. I can't engage with that. I don't, I don't, I don't care about that. I don't care. McDonald's would have gluten-free French fries and I still wouldn't eat them. So I think, yeah, I think I want to work with people for whom health is at the core. And if the gluten-free thing is an, of interest or of necessity, then let's talk about it. And I'm, I'm absolutely not judging people who eat gluten. I think that that's silly. I, I'm not, I'm also not praising people for eating gluten-free because I think that's silly too. I think everybody has to make their choices and live with them. I personally don't have the option, so fine. And so I've come to eat this way with absolutely no complex about it. And within the restaurant setting, you know, I don't engage also with the the debate that is, you know, are you a problem client because you're requiring a gluten-free, I'm, like, I'm like, I'm just, this is how I have to eat and I'm coming to give you my money. And if you're going to make me sick, I'm going to be irritated. So, you know, I'm going to give you every opportunity to comply with my dietary needs, whether or not you agree with them. I'm not here to ask you whether you agree with how I should eat. Like, thank you for your interest, but maybe I'll make my choices. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it does, it does feel a bit like if you are anywhere outside the so-called norm of what, I don't know who decided what the norm is, but it certainly wasn't us, in, in a restaurant or in a sort of social situation, a gathering, whatever, then yeah, there is a certain feeling that you're difficult or some sort of party pooper or making other people feel bad. Whereas, you know, you're just I mean, people wouldn't say that if you had broken your arm or whatever, but they, they pass judgment or you feel like they do sometimes because yeah, of what I you know, do. There's a real, there's a weird, yeah, there's a weird um, twist to the service industry in that respect. But having now, you know, been on either side of the kitchen, um, yeah, I'm... I'm a, I'm a more problematic client today than I ever was prior to going to cooking school because I've seen how much and how little rigor there can be for individual workers in a kitchen. And the potential is quite high for there to be problems. And so I, like I said, I wanna give the kitchen staff every opportunity to give me the, the plate that they wanna give me. You know, as a, as a worker in a kitchen myself, I wanna give the client a really high quality experience and I certainly don't want to make them sick and so the conversation becomes really important so rather than not wanting to take the time I go the other way I want to go out in my whites as the you know as the chef to say hello you know I mean I'm hearing that you have some sensitivities let's talk about it because I want to you know make sure that I have a handle on them if I'm going to serve you 
a really good meal, you know? And I think it gets twisted and contorted in terms of, you know, the litigious nature of society sometimes, and that's for good, for better and for worse. And I think, you know, fads and, I, I think there does have to be a little bit of coherence. I mean, I've, I, I myself have had clients who say that they're gonna eat gluten-free and then they order a beer with their meal and you're like, well, okay, but beer is not gluten. So, yeah. you, you know, I get it. There are degrees of, you know, but, but that's always gonna be the case. And at the same time, it is a service industry. So if somebody wants a gluten-free dish, I think it's our job to provide a gluten-free dish and whether or not they have a beer with it is absolutely none of my business. Yeah, yeah, that's great that you're so sensitive to people's sensitivities, as it were, and that, you know, that you have taken your situation with celiac disease and applied it to a positive offering, which is your bed and breakfast. Well, it's, I think in France, there's a real delay in, in terms of, um, being able to accommodate uh, difference <laughs> generally. Yeah. And so, and especially maybe in the, in the cuisine, you know, cuisine is kind of a rigid thing. And France is a bit of an icon for cuisine and there's the whole bread culture. And so all of these things tend to work against any kind of gluten-free culture making its way into mainstream society. So, I mean, and like I said, I'm from Vancouver where, I mean, I was 12 and there were gluten-free cafes popping up, you know, like it's just, it's just part of the, the backdrop in Vancouver and on the West Coast. And so to be now 40 years later in a place where you can still count on the palm of your hand, the number of places that I could potentially go and eat and be guaranteed that the kitchen was 100%, you know, gluten-free is in a country that's, you know, four times the population. It's just baffling to me that that could be the case, but but great, that means that I have a niche and it means that people do find me and they're more than happy to come back. And, you know, I have, I feel like I'm building a super loyal clientele and um, it's lovely. It's truly lovely to have. And I love being able to provide that complex free model also, because I think the people here that are newly diagnosed are still really grappling with, is it okay that I'm different like this? It's not a choice. It's not so, a choice. And, I, and even if it were, you know, so be it. Right. But it's not. And or, or I mean, people that want to choose to eat gluten free should have that opportunity as well. But for many people, it's not a choice. And because it's not a choice, then it just seems in my mind to follow that these options should be available more readily. And, you know, school cafeterias have to be more accommodating and they're not and so I mean it's a real struggle still um far more than it should be in this um context and so it's lovely to have a family come for you know 10 days in the summer and have everybody collectively exhale over the uh. course Ten days, you know, and the mom can just like, oh, they can eat here and it's okay. Nobody's gonna get sick, and even I can have a holiday then because otherwise, you know, they do an Airbnb and she's having to figure out how does the new grocery store work and how to where what are the pots and pans and you know it's not a holiday for her. But here she can come and she can just be along the side of the pool and I'll cook for them. You know, fantastic, fantastic. And all of us are gonna eat together. It's a very normalizing experience too because my children eat gluten free and I eat gluten free and so everybody's around the table and it's not okay here. This is your portion and everybody else eats something else. It's no, we're all gonna eat like this. Yes, it, it is normalizing. It's fantastic. You know that. 
because we often feel on the sidelines of society if we veer from anything that's considered normal. And I've had that myself with this, you know, and I, by default, eat gluten-free now because I don't eat any or very few processed products. And But luckily for me, if I do happen to eat gluten, it's not going to harm me. It'll give me stomach cramps for sure yeah. because I've become that much more sensitive to it. But that's not quite the same as being celiac, you know. But yeah. but I mean, when when you veer from what other people consider is normal, then... It's it's tough. It's really tough. And then, you know, you well, feel I think, bad. I think too often people take our own uh, approach as somehow a criticism of how they do it. And so yes. there's a negative reaction there. And, you know, that's absolutely not the intention. I mean, I'm not eating gluten free to make you feel bad. I'm eating gluten free because I will get sick if I eat this. Yes. But so, I, you know, I hear in other people's reaction that they feel like it has something to do with them and it absolutely does not. And so, you know, I think it takes a certain emotional intelligence to get to the point where you can accept difference without feeling judgment. Yeah, that's lovely. Yes, totally. So um, do you have clients who are just French from France or are they from all over the world at your bed and breakfast? Well, we've opened, so we've been here for a good year, but you know, it's crazy times. oh yeah with COVID and all the rest of it and all the lockdowns and all so I've had numerous uh people from numerous places but they are they have all been people who live either in France or in Europe for the moment but you know so I've had Australians and I've had um Canadians and Belgians but they're all people that were living here because they were stuck here during the COVID um era Mm -hmm. so I'm interested to see starting this summer how things are going to evolve um so yeah we're hopeful that there will be more and more you know opening of societies around the world and so I think we are hopeful that we are acquiring the herd immunity that was you know the ultimate goal for for us all um but we'll have to see. We have one project that is an AIP retreat the AIP is the autoimmune protocol and so I'm I'm offering an AIP retreat. So it's a full seven day program um, in July for anybody that wants help adopting the AIP. The AIP is a bit of a protocol that's kind of elaborate. Um, uh, It's a variant on the paleo diet. Um, And I'm an AIP coach and my colleague is an AIP coach. And so it's one of the few opportunities that people have to have us put you on the diet initially and and also coach you through how you can then learn how to cook this way and how to you know adopt and we're going to talk about all the different lifestyle issues and um so yeah that's going to be a really exciting offering and then beyond that I do lots of yoga retreats um people are welcome to get in touch if they're interested in collaborating to put a retreat together I mean I'm always up for that kind of collaboration I think that's amazing Um, I'm in a beautiful beautiful region we're in the Seven National Park so we're just about an hour north of Montpellier Um, and it's it's just a country village where we have two donkeys and the neighbor's rooster are the only sounds that you will likely hear while you're here fantastic wonderful the the babbling the babbling brook that goes through the yard and you know the purpose is to be right back outside and as much in the greenery of the surrounding as you can be and you lay in the hammock and I will cook for you and you can just you know yeah 
wonderful nature and yourself and 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 yeah and I mean and anybody that's wanting to talk about health and diet and I'm happy to tell them what my position is but I think at the end of the day everybody has to come up with their own definition of what it is that they want their diet to be and why um and what foods make them feel good and which ones don't um and it is very individual and that's okay yeah yeah and you know that i think gives us back our personal power to decide what's good for us and what's not so good mm-hmm. instead of being told by you know and i respect you know the dietitians and the nutritionists it's just that it does it's not a one size fits all for me what makes me feel good is kind of like the opposite of what they say what they say should make me feel good well again i think we're not always starting with health Um, and resiliency and a robust um, health as our goal. I think often people are going to those people because they want to lose weight, but losing weight is not always going to be a pursuit that is, you know, in pursuit of health. You can lose weight. Like thin isn't healthy necessarily there are lots of people who are thin and incredibly unhealthy yeah and there are lots of people that are heavier that have wonderfully solid and robust health so i think we have to start stop conflating those two issues also um but yeah i mean i think if we all kept health true definitions of health as what our end goal was um the world would be a very different place I think Uh, I totally agree uh thank you so much for talking to me wonderful yeah it's my pleasure we you and I it's funny you and I have lived sort of parallel lives but in reverse (laughs) (laughs) yes it's like we sort of both teachers both Canada both kind of all kinds of things and here we are like here we are on the same podcast (laughs) I know (laughs) it is a small world after all Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Meta. Oh, what a wonderful conversation with Jan. And I feel like buying my plane ticket right now to her bed and breakfast in the south of France, even if I'm not officially a celiac. So Jan is inviting you to go to spend a wonderful time at her beautiful bed and breakfast. Let her cook for you. Let the animals and the beautiful scenery soothe you. Stroll down to the river for an all-natural dip or soak in their pool in the heat of summer. I'll put the link to her bed and breakfast in the show notes with this episode. And if you want some free resources about what real whole foods are and where the processed food companies hide those sneaky sugars, then head on over to my website, aftersugarclub.com and click on the tab what to eat you'll find three videos there one about which foods don't have added sugars another about how to find these foods at the grocery store and the third video is about what's the deal with fermented foods because these are also whole foods that look after your gut health and gut health is central to your general health and while you're there on the website at aftersugarclub.com you can download your simple guide to getting more energy just click on the tab simple guide 
or download my five tips for getting rid of cravings. Whether you're an intermittent faster or not, cravings can really stop you from feeling free with your food. So download those five tips at aftersugarclub.com and you can get more free resources and tips on the Life After Sugar YouTube channel, the Life After Sugar Facebook page and come and subscribe to my Instagram account at mylifeaftersugar. That's where I post pictures of what I eat, what I do, sometimes some inspiring quotes or sometimes just pictures of our cat so that you can see that it's totally possible to live a fun and active life even if you don't eat sugar. And for a deeper dive into your relationship with sugar and how you can work towards freeing yourself from the hold that sugar has on you so that you can get to that place of joyful freedom from sugar that I've been living for almost seven years and experience what it feels like not to want, need or even miss sugar anymore, then the After Sugar Club is for you. Check it out at aftersugarclub.com. And if this podcast is inspiring you to take one more step towards your life after sugar, then could I ask you to please scroll down and leave the podcast a lovely five-star rating and leave a short review to let me know how this podcast is inspiring you to break free from sugar your way and find the real sweetness in life. Thank you for listening. That's it for this week. Keep in touch and see you soon for another episode.